There we go. Couple quick announcements. Everything that we haven't been doing the past few weeks back on schedule today. So youth confirmation right after uh, Sunday school till 12:45. New members class uh, uh, from six o'clock to 7:30 uh, p.m. Please feel free to join us for that if you're interested in that. Anybody's welcome to come to that. Uh, Lent services start this Wednesday. Uh, I'd like to strongly encourage you guys to come out. Um, what I'm going to do. Uh, this Lent is I'm going, since we're doing the Revelation series uh, on Sunday mornings, I'm going to preach through the gospel readings for Lent on Wednesday evenings. And then afterwards, after the service, uh, we'll gather together downstairs and, and uh, eat some food and hang out with each other. So please feel free to join us for that. Grab the guest register at the end of your aisle, uh, sign that, pass that to the people sitting next to you. You can do attendance uh, with the QR code in the guest register book. If you'd like, you can also give with the QR code. Make sure everybody on the aisle gets that. Also, uh, announcements are on the sheet. Uh, uh, should be back there whenever you leave, uh, announcing all the good stuff that's coming up. Okay, that's all I've got for this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, get into worship. Father, be with us today as we gather around your word and sacrament. And you know what we need, Lord. You know what we need more than we do. Uh, we desperately need you. We need the transcendent. We don't need more information. We don't need instructions on how to live. Uh, we don't even primarily need comfort, except to the extent that that comfort comes from you and the knowledge that you are meeting with us here this morning. Take away our shame. Take away the guilt that we have, all of us bringing in here. Uh, take away our hopelessness in you. And we'll give you the credit for it. We praise you um, in your son's name, in which we pray, amen. Let's sing the opening hymn.
Please stand. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. You are, the Lord, you are the Lord and you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. You have called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You have become our God and made us your people, and yet we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you. You have delivered us many times according to your covenant mercies. You have warned us, and yet we have acted presumptuously. You have sent us prophets, and we have turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey your law. You are the Lord and you alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before you and before each other, they have only gotten us into trouble. They have only enslaved us. They have not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Amen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. From Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. 
Old Testament reading uh, for this morning is the very, very important Genesis 3, 1 through 21. This is, this is the primal sin. This is the, this is the sin at the heart of all of our sins, which is the desire to be God, the desire to be completely in control, to have nobody over us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Revelation reading, this is Revelation 15 and 16. Uh, good news, it's not as long as last week's reading. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, 
clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 4. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated.
right, Revelation 15 and 16. We're getting close to the end of, I, I know it's, it's been repetitive. It's, it's, uh, it's almost been like getting punched over and over again in the head. We've had this cycle of you know, seven trumpets, uh, seven seals, uh, seven signs in, in chapters 14 through 16, and now the seven bowls. And um, if, you, if you haven't been here, or if you have been here and you've forgotten, which I understand, uh, these are not telling one linear story. Each of these cycles of seven is telling the same story, which is the story of the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming and what the world is going to look like. There's lots of bad stuff going on. Uh, everybody agrees about this. There's natural disasters. There's geopolitical turmoil. There's economic crisis. Behind all of that, though, God insists is his wooing people to come back to himself and his guarantee that he will save and deliver his people and vindicate the name of his son. So we come to the same sort of thing going on here. There's a cycle of seven plagues. And as I pointed out before, you guys can see that the plagues are basically referencing the plagues of the Exodus. Uh, back in uh, the book of Exodus, the plagues that, the, that God put on the Egyptians for not, uh, for not um, trusting in him, for continuing to rebel against him. Why is that? Again, well, because the target here is the empires of the world that oppress God's people. There's always been pharaohs in the world. There's always been Caesars. There's always been Adolf Hitlers. Those are extreme examples. God is always dealing with them in the same way, which is he takes them down and he vindicates his own good name. Get the same pattern here. Like I said, there's a lot of similarities between the trumpets and the seals. Um, let's look at some, let's, let's, not rehash those similarities, uh, but let's look at some of the differences in the seven bowls compared to the seven seals. I'm going to point out th three things that are different about the seven bowls here in Revelation 15 through 16. So first of all, the judgment is complete. We we've been seeing God judging the world in each one of the cycles of seven beforehand, but there's a little bit of a different flavor in the seven, uh, um, uh, in the seven bowls. There's a flavor of completeness, like this is it. I'm done messing around. Uh, so for, uh, verse one of chapter 15, so again, we got two chapters here, so I'll have to be specific about what, what, what chapter in. Chapter 15, verse one, um, seven plagues here, uh, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So unlike the previous ones where it's just a part of the story of life between Jesus' first coming and second coming, this is two, but with an emphasis on God is done. This is the last. This is his last call to the earth to repent and turn to him. Also, if you go down to uh, verse uh, 3 of chapter 16, second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Do you remember some of the, the, the um, with the trumpets and the seals? It would say, God turned, um, the trumpet blew, and then the water was turned to blood, and a third of the animals died that were in there. A lot of thirds, a lot of partial judgment. This judgment here is final. Every animal, every living thing that was in the sea dies. So um, these bulls have more of a future, God is done, final sort of a vibe here. I just, and, and I, I want to make a note that I've made slightly the past uh, couple weeks when we've talked about this, but just a, a little pastoral note if I can. These sort of texts here, uh, you know, I'm thinking specifically of, well, a lot, of these, a lot of these verses, but chapter 16, verse 5, where the angel in charge of the water says, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, 
For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. A lot of us don't have struggled with the book of Revelation for a number of reasons. One is the, uh, the wacky symbolism. But another reason is that it's full of a lot of judgment, a lot of like God is going to blow people up who do not submit to him. And that's hard for us. We don't like that. We, we don't like it. It, it, it. You know, if, if that's the kind of message that we have for the world, it feels judgmental. It feels cruel even. And, and on top of that, like, is the concern that if we say that, yes, God is a God who judges sin, it makes us feel judgmental. Like somehow we think it's good that everybody's getting judged. But can I point out to you, and, and, I, and I break this quote out once a year because it's such a good one. Can I point out to you that it's actually a belief in divine judgment that should, it doesn't always do it, it should keep Christians from exacting their own judgment. It's only a belief in divine judgment that keeps Christians saying, we don't have to retaliate because God will take care of it. There will be justice on the last day. If there is no God, this, the sense that I need to make right what's been done wrong to me is overwhelming. It's actually a belief that there is no God, which causes people to exact divine, not divine, exact vengeance because they know the only way for them to get justice is to get it themselves. So um, there's this great quote by Miroslav Volf where he point. this is the quote that I was offering you. He's Croatian. He lived through the Croatian civil wars, came to the States. He's now, he's now a professor of philosophy at Yale. But there's this great quote. He's a Christian. There's this great quote by him where he's basically saying it's a myth that a belief in a divine judging God causes people to be violent. Here's what he says. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. Now, that's kind of a mouthful there. But what he's saying is, you basically have to live in the United States in a nice, peaceful, quiet community. It's only those people who can say, I can't believe in God because God's a God of judgment and I think judgment's wrong. You would have to live a pretty easy life to be comfortable saying, I don't believe in a God of judgment. He grew up in the Croatian Civil Wars. So he believes in a God of judgment because if there's no God of judgment, all of that was meaningless. All of that was just pure random evil. But he knows there's a God who will put things to right. So he goes on to say, in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, that dream will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He means, he means capital L, liberal. Like, us, you know, freedom, liberty. God should, if God's a good God, he just leaves people alone, lets them do what they want. That's actually not a good God, Wolf is arguing. God has to be a God of justice if he is God. A God who would look at the slaughter of the innocents. A God who would look at the kind of things that happened in the Croatian Civil War. Or the kind of things that happened in the Holocaust. Or the kind of things that happens in our neighborhood. And say, I'm not going to do it. I'm a forgiving God. I just got, Hitler, I know he's a bad guy. You know he's a bad guy. But I've got to be nice. i just got to let that go. That's not a God at all. The God of Revelation is the only God that can actually satisfy our need for, for, for justice. Else there's no way that justice will ever happen. So I, I know, oh, and, and Wolf's, Wolf's uh, side point here uh, is, if you believe in a God of divine justice, that frees you to love everybody else, even if they do evil things to you, because you don't have to take care of it. 
If somebody defrauds you, if somebody hurts, you know, somebody burns your house down or somebody, you know, hurts one of your kids, you can be justly anger, angry at that unrighteous thing and at the same time say, I don't have to do anything because I trust that God, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue justice here in this world. I'm not saying that. But the sense that I've got to go Liam Neeson on somebody or Clint Eastwood on somebody, the Christian doesn't have to do that because the Christian knows vengeance is God's and he repays. All right, so complete judgment. Second thing that's different, a little bit different in the seven bulls is this. The nations of the world, okay, so uh, hang in here with me. The nations of the world turn against the beast's empire. So we've been looking, in chapters 12 through 14, we looked at the beast, the second beast, the beast that comes up out of the sea, who is a political figure, who, and he's not, again, there's not, first of all, there's not a literal beast coming up out of the sea. Second of all, the beast isn't one dude. It's, it's all the Hitlers and all the, all the Neros that have risen up and decided, I will be God. I will rule over this world, and I will crush the people who oppose me underneath my feet. It's all of these people. So um, the kingdoms of the world turn against the beast. Look at verse 12 of chapter 16 here. Um, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Okay, so again, this is not literal. It's true, but it's not, it's, the Euphrates doesn't literally get dried up. That would hardly matter anymore. But during the Roman Empire, do you ever know this? No, no, we don't know this. I actually didn't know it until I was studying it. So I would expect everybody else to know, except for John Parkin, he probably knows it. The Euphrates is the eastern barrier, the eastern border of the Roman Empire, right? Now, politically, Caesar, the Caesars didn't have too much fear about people attacking them. They could handle the Gauls, uh, at least in, in, in the first century, they could handle the Gauls, they could handle uh, um, the, the pagans uh, from Northern Europe. Their big fear was the Parthians, the old Persian empire, who was powerful, but who was blocked by the Euphrates River. Now, this is hard for us to understand because rivers don't block our militaries anymore. I mean, you just fly over them, right? But, but back in the ancient world, rivers were a big deal. You couldn't just, I mean, you could cross them, but it was slow going. There's a reason why we justly celebrate Washington crossing the Delaware. It's a dude in a boat crossing a river. What's the big deal? Actually, militarily, it's a big deal. Back in that day, to cross a river with an army is very, very hard to do. So the Euphrates is there, and it's blocking the Parthians. It's blocking the Parthians from um, coming in to attack the Roman Empire. Now, what does this have to do with, uh, with the beast here? If the beast in John's day is the Roman Empire, this is one of the great fears of the beast, is that what is blocking the armies from the east coming in and attacking me is this, is the Euphrates. And if the Euphrates dries up, we're in big trouble. This is also a reference to, okay, uh, 30 seconds. If you like history, pay attention. If you don't like history, zone out. 539 BC, the actual real city of Babylon, the city of Babylon in, in Revelation is a cipher. It's a symbol for the evil cities here, Rome, but any evil city that rises up against God. But the actual real city of Babylon in 539 BC was conquered by the Persian Empire. How? How did Cyrus do this? Well, he knew that he couldn't attack the walls of Babylon. They were too powerful. 
So at night, by the way, this story is told in the book of Daniel, not with all the details that, that Xenophon and Herodotus tell us from history, but basically the structure of it. You know, the belt of Shazer, the handwriting on the wall, that's the same story I'm telling you now. Cyrus diverts the Euphrates so that it dries up. And in the gate, the gate underneath the city walls that the Euphrates would go in and water the city, the Persian army went in through there to get inside the city. This is one of the great fears of the ancient world that somebody will dry the Euphrates up and attack us unawares. The beast, it's going to happen. The beast thinks he rules the whole world, but the other nations are getting tired of him, sick of him, and are rising up against him. And there's going to be a huge battle where the nations of the world, not because they worship God, but because they're sick of the beast, attack the beast. Now, th this, is, th this happens in the Bible, doesn't it? Where God... God's people are delivered, not because God's people are really good militarily, but because God causes the bad guys to fight themselves. It happens more than once in the Old Testament. Think about the story of Gideon, where, where Gideon stands above the, um, who's the army that Gideon stands above? Midianites, thank you. Okay, thank you. The Midianites stands above the Midianites, and they hold the torches up, they smash the pitchers, and they yell, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then what happens? They don't really have to fight at all because the Midianites freak out. God turns them on themselves and they slaughter each other. Similar thing happening here in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16. The enemies of God are turning on themselves. They're tired of, and why wouldn't they be tired of the beast? This is what happens with evil empires is that they can't carry their own weight. The evil only carries them so far before there's an uprising from below that tries to topple them. And that's what's happening here. The dragon and the beast don't care, though. They want battle. And so this is really kind of, this is, I don't know if you're keeping score at home. This is the wacky detail from this, uh, from this text. Verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So that's, the, remember the, from last week, the two beasts, the one from the sea and the one from the land. This is the first time that the second beast is called a false prophet. I'll get back to that in just a, a few minutes. Three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of their mouth. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So the kings of the east, people from the empire, are going to attack the beast. And the beast is like, let's do this. Let's fight. And, and he sends out these three frog-like spirits. This is, again, as so often, this is a... Uh, this is an allusion to the frog's plague from uh, back in Exodus. To say to all the people in the world, let's do this. Let's have one big war to decide who's going to be in charge. This is what, you know, so the beast, the dragon, they want power, but failing that, they want destruction. I want to be in charge, but if I can't be in charge, I'm blowing everything else up with me. This is the way the beasts do things. Nero did this, right? Nero wants power. If he can't have power, he's going to burn down the city of Rome. Has anybody ever read um, anything about Hitler in the last days of the Third Reich, holed up in his bunker with Joseph Goebbels in uh, Berlin? And he knows that the Soviets are about to get on top of him. The Americans are coming from the West. Americans and Brits are coming from the West. And so one of his last edicts is burn down the city of Berlin. If I can't be in charge, I want to destroy everybody. And some of his underlings said, behind his back, of course, we're not doing that. That's nuts. But he's the beast. This is what he does. I want power. If I can't have power, I'm going to destroy what I can't have. There's also lots of little mini beasts in the world today, too, which are just as beastly as 
as Hitler or Nero or Pharaoh who say, I want this and if I can't have it, I'm gonna destroy it. I want this, I want this promotion at the office and if I can't have it, I'm gonna undermine what's going on at work. I want this relationship and if I can't have that relationship with that person, I'm gonna undermine every other relationship that that, that person has with other people. It's a very beastly thing to do. It's very uh, Revelation 16. But the fourth thing I wanna point out here is that this is God's battle. This is God's battle. This is the great day of God the Almighty. Into verse 14. So the nations of the world are gonna turn on each other, but it is God's battle. God is in charge of it. He oversees it just like he did with Gideon and the Midianites. God is overseeing it and saying, I'm gonna use this for them to destroy themselves and so that I can reign supreme. It also includes, oh, by the way, uh, um, Armageddon. Can, can I put that off till adult Bible study? That, I don't know if that's what everybody wants to talk about now, but I don't have time to talk about what Armageddon is there. I know it's like a super popular name. Uh, people like, what is Armageddon? We'll talk about it in adult Bible study, but it has to do with the fact that this is God's battle. Or let me put you off on that. All right, right in the middle of this description is this weird, this is describing this like cataclysmic battle where the kingdoms of the earth destroy themselves. And right in the middle of that is this weird parenthetical comment by Jesus in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is a little bit random, if you believe in randomness. If not, this is uh, God's sovereignty, that we read Genesis 3 this morning, where nakedness is a sign of hiding against God. Nakedness is a sign of rebellion against God here. And what, why in the description, right in the middle of the description of Armageddon, would God say to his people, would Jesus say to his people, behold, I'm coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays away. Well, the reason is this, is because the third beast, the second beast, I'm sorry, is a false prophet. Not everybody in the Christian church is a believer in Jesus. And we always have to be warned to stay awake. Keep on guard against false prophets. Keep on guard against teaching which appears to be Christian, but actually is working on the side of the beast. Keep on guard against teaching which says Christianity is great, but really what's important is power and control or pleasure. Paul's fighting this all through his letter. 2 Corinthians is a classic example. There are super apostles, he calls them in the church, who are teaching the church, Jesus is good. But what Jesus does, unlike that Paul guy, what Jesus does is he gives us power, he gives us cultural relevance, he makes us rich, he gives us pleasure, that's beastly. Paul actually says it's anathema. It's not, it's a false gospel. The Christian church always has to be on guard against it because it's always tempting for us to decide for the beast over against Jesus. So right in the middle of this uh, description of Armageddon is this warning. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Keep your garments on. Be ready for the day that I return. Okay, that's the second thing. Third thing, there's a direct refusal to repent. Unlike in the other... Um, in the, you know, in the trumpets and in the seals, the plagues happen, and it doesn't really say much about the response of the people to the plagues. But here with the seven bulls, you do get that. Look at verse 9 of chapter 16. Uh, they're scorched uh, by the heat of the fourth bull, and what do they do? End of verse 9, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. They cursed God's name because of these plagues. So there seems to be a growing awareness there is a divine being who's doing bad stuff to us. 
There's a divine being who's doing and they're cursing God for doing that. Same thing down in verse 11. Uh, the fifth bull happens. Uh, the, the, the kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness, which, by the way, is probably why the kings of the east are now opposed to him, because there seems to be some sort of disorder or loss of strength or viability in the beast reign, which this is what happens to beast. They curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Finally, vast, uh, last line of the reading as a response to the seventh bull. They cursed God for the plague of the hail, the, for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So there seems to be, there, there's, there's a direct refusal to repent. There seems to be a sense that God's in charge of this and we hate him for it. We refuse to believe in a God who would do bad stuff like this. Honestly, when I talk to atheists, I would say 75%, 25% of the time, short sample uh, size warning here, 25% of the time, it's a philosophical, I don't believe in the existence of God, you know, just, I, you know, I've thought it through. 75% of the time, it's not that people don't believe in God, it's that they don't want to believe in God because bad things have happened. Now, I heard a comedian say this um, within the past year, and I did not write down who it was, and, so, and I'm kicking myself for that, so I, I can't, uh, I, I can't uh, uh, fact check this, but the comedian said something along the lines of, um, Things were going, and this is old, it's like in the 1960s. Things were going really bad in their life. This is an, a person who doesn't believe in God. Things are going really bad in their life. And they kind of shook their fist to heaven and said, God, why are you doing this to me? Is it because I don't believe in you? And that actually captures exactly what I'm talking about. That and when I was away from faith for those three or four years, that's where I was at. If you had asked me, do you believe that there's a God? I would have said, Yeah. Do you, if you had asked me, do you believe that Jesus historically rose from the dead, I would have said, sure, yeah. But I did not believe in God, not because I didn't think he wasn't there, because I hated him. I hated him for what he had done to me, which I, in, in retrospect wasn't that bad, you know? But I hated him for it. I choose not to believe in him. That's what they're doing. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's not that they don't believe in the kingdom of Jesus. It's that they hate it so much that they refuse to believe in it, like I was doing. Very beastly behavior. Very kingdom of this world behavior. But, and I, I, for, for those of you, I, I just did this at the high school recently, too, so high school students, you've heard this recently. And the rest of you have heard it, me say it too before. It just, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. If God is there, he's there. And, and the point isn't, do I like him or not? He doesn't actually invite me to like him. There are lots of times in the Bible when people don't like God because of stuff he's done to them. Check out the book of Job. But to say, I refuse to believe in him because I don't like him, makes the same sort of sense that shaking your fist, standing on the beach and shaking your fist at the oncoming tsunami and saying, I refuse to believe in that tsunami because I hate what it's gonna do to my village makes no sense. You can shake your fist, but it doesn't take the tsunami away. God is God and he's there. And like him, love him, hate him, confused by him, all of that is in some sense irrelevant. If he is the God who is there, he wants us to obey him. He wants us to believe in him. He wants us to submit to him. And then he'll sort out the rest of the stuff. He will woo us to like him. He will woo us to love him and to learn to trust him. But it doesn't make any sense to say, I refuse to believe in him because I don't like him. 
If he's there, he's there. And that's the problem that these people have had. This is a better position in some sense to be in because at least you know that God's there and you're acknowledging, they're acknowledging his sovereignty and saying, you know, we hate him for what he's doing to us. But it's also scarier because now the cards are on the table. And once you're willing, I, I, listen, I, like I told you, I've been there. Once you're willing to make that commitment and say, I don't care if he is God, I don't care if I'm tiny, I hate him, you're oh so much more close to damning yourself. And not him damning you, damning yourself. Just like you don't blame the tsunami if you stand on the beach and shake your fist at it and it overwhelms you and drowns you. You don't say, man, why is the tsunami so mean? That's what tsunamis do. It's my fault for standing there on the beach and shaking my fist at it. And so in some ways, it's more scary. So here's the three differences. There's a complete final judgment here. The nations of the world turning on the beast empire, which I think is an intriguing detail. And then finally, the third one is the direct refusal of the citizens of the beast kingdom, of the citizens of the world's kingdoms, to repent. What's the same thing? And this will be very short. What's the same message from the previous cycles? Three things. First of all, God remembers. Second of all, God redeems. And then third of all, God reveals his righteous acts to the nations. Verse 19 uh, on, in chapter 16, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. This is during the seventh bowl. And God remembered Babylon the great. God remembered Babylon the great. Now, for those of you who are in Miroslav Wolf's position, which isn't many of you to that extreme, but all of you are in the position to some extent of having been wronged in your life, of having been betrayed, of having been misused, of having things go south for you. Remember that God remembers. God is so tempting when things go south to be like, God, where are you at? The Bible consistently promises that God sees. He knows. He will make it right. God remembers what Babylon has done. God remembers how Babylon has hurt his people. And he sees it and he will undo it. He will vindicate his people. He will punish those who have shed the blood of his people. He will punish the wrongs that he's done to you. The, the, the wrongs that have been done to you. Now, one of two ways, right? Either, look, and I said this last Sunday, he'll, he'll either punish, like, if the person who's wronged you repents and trusts in Jesus, he will judge that wrong in his son, Jesus Christ. If they don't, though, he will take care of it on the last day. He will punish them on the last day. Second thing, God redeems. This is a, on a happier note. Chapter 15 and verse three, there's this great song that they say that it's the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of, why does it say the song of Moses? Moses ain't showing up in the story. Well, it's the song of Moses because like so many of the, uh, the, uh, the, the plagues, this is going back to Exodus and the plague narratives. What's the song of Moses in Exodus? God delivers his people with the plagues. They cross the Red Sea. And at the end of Exodus 14, God says, Moses sang this incredible song. And then Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel sing this song in chapter 15. Now, you go read it on your own the song in chapter 15. But the, basically the gist of it is this. God punishes the people who oppress his people. God will punish the people who oppress his people because God is the king. Exodus 15, the song of Moses is the first time in the Bible where Yahweh is called the king. God is the king. Nero's not king. Hitler's not king. There's no president or prime minister or media mogul or ultra billionaire who is the king. Only God is the king, and the Song of Moses calls us back to this reality. The version of the Song of Moses is in Revelation 15, is great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Rhetorical question, like, who would not fear God? 
Everybody's going to, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your, your righteous acts have been redeemed. Like the first act of redemption out of Egypt through the hand of Moses, God will do the same thing throughout history, and on the last day, God will redeem his people. By, this is the third thing, God re- will reveal his righteous acts to the nations. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What are his righteous acts? Well, righteous acts are the acts that he does to make righteous. The acts that flow out of his righteousness that make others righteous. The righteous acts of God are the acts by which he looks at the world and says, I will not give it up. I will not give my people up. I will not let the beast rule and reign over them. I will act to defend them and rescue them. How does he do this? He does this by actually writing himself into the story, by becoming a human being and coming here to bring about his kingdom to die on the cross so that our deaths, whether by the hand of the beast or by the hand of a plague or by the hand of old age, will be swallowed up in his own death so that when he rises rises from the dead, it guarantees that we will live forever, newness of life. And more than that, it guarantees that his entire creation will one day be fixed. This is his righteous act, what he does from the cross. The result, last line and then I'll be done. The result is all nations will come and worship you. I know it's tempting to think when you read the book of Revelation or you read the newspaper, God is losing. Like, this is not a good situation here. Let me just remind you once again from Revelation that all nations will come and worship Yahweh. All nations will come and worship Jesus. Jesus wins. I don't mean he wins the minor victory of saving me and you. I mean Jesus wins the nations to himself. He promises it will happen. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being the sovereign and loving ruler of the nations. Rescue us, Father. Defend us from the beast and from the dragon and from the false prophets of our world. May by the power of your Holy Spirit, your son Jesus, rule and reign not just in our hearts, not just in our church, but may Jesus rule and reign in Glen Carbon. We pray this in his name. Amen. Oh, mm-hmm.
stand for prayer. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for all the goodness and all the grace you've given us and all the mercy you've poured out on us. And thank you for rescuing us from, uh, not from this world in the sense of your creation, which you are devoted to and which you love, but thank you for, for rescuing us from this uh, world system of values where your good gifts are treated as ultimate, where Money and sex and power are not seen as gifts from you, but as uh, they're tools that the enemy uses to control us. Thank you for rescuing from that and redeeming us to your son, Jesus Christ, and freeing us and empowering us to love and serve each other, to make a relationship and responsibility um, the goal of your kingdom in our lives. Lord, in your mercy. We thank you uh, for all your good gifts, especially for your gift of life, and we thank you especially this morning for the birth of Ruby to Joe and Meg, and for the health of um, mother and child, and pray that you would uh, uh, be with her, pour out your Holy Spirit on her, draw her quickly to the waters of baptism, never let there be a moment in her life when she isn't aware and doesn't believe that you, God, love her and that she belongs to you and that she's your daughter. And be with Meg, too. Uh, Father, give her physically strength and give Joe and Meg the grace of loving unconditionally one that cannot serve them back at this moment, but in the name of Jesus to raise this child. And, and for all of us, Father, who are parents, grandparents, or who have kids that we take care of, in whatever realm, give us the grace and the mercy and the strength from the Holy Spirit to love and serve these people in your name. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with the ministries of our church. I pray this morning that you'd be with our community groups and that you'd be with Shanna, who leads those. And in those groups, as we gather together and uh, get involved with each other's lives and pray with each other and read your word together and learn to be weak and vulnerable with each other. Father, allow us to see the glory of your resurrected son. Allow us to, be, allow us to find healing and wholeness. Allow us to be turned outside of ourselves and into relationship to you. Father, we also pray for Josh and Coco Lang, who are ministering in China in your name, and we pray that you would bless them there and that you would guide and care for them in their ministry. And as they live gospel lives there, and speak the words of your truth in that context that believers would be sanctified and that unbelievers would be drawn to you. Uh, protect them and provide for them physically too. Lord, in your mercy. 
be with everyone here this morning who's uh, worried, who is uh, uh, facing physical health problems, uh, mental health issues, people who are mourning the loss of loved ones or people who are worried about death, their death or the death of others. Be with all of us who battle anxiety. Uh, be with us who battle uh, apathy, Lord, and malaise and feeling like there's hopelessness and there's no meaning. Father, would you give us, all of us, whatever category we fall into or categories we fall into there, would you give us hope and healing in the resurrection of your son, Jesus, Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things, Father, because you have invited us into your throne room, because you have not just justified us, but you've adopted us as your children. You've given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We know that you are our Father. And so we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, in the name of our brother, Jesus, and ask these prayers in your name, asking you to accomplish them according to your will for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. All who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord, in the highest. Now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom in the power, in the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. You may be seated.
Oh, 
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Hey! 
Let us bless the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Look around. Find somebody that you have not talked to recently or that you don't recognize. Build community. Go in peace.